0: There aren't very many film directors whose work is as inextricably associated with a specific place as Oliver Stone is with Vietnam. And yet, every time we return there with him, we are given another of the myriad stories he's able to conjure out of the rice and blood of this country. Heaven and Earth was billed as the third in the Oliver Stone Vietnam trilogy, after Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July and yet it is so different from the first two that it feels as much like an Oliver Stone Vietnam movie as Rocky V feels like a Rocky movie. Adam wrote that. In 1991, Stone was positively excoriated for JFK, so he returned to the womb that birthed his creative vision for one final go-around. But can we trust him? In literature, we learn of the unreliable narrator, and you have to admit, post-JFK, and especially now, Stone resembles that remark. But here we get a sensitive version of Stone, carefully telling the story of our main character, Lele Hayslip, And this is crucial. It's not Stone's story to tell this time. It's hers. You want to talk about being in the shit? Lee was in the shit. Her village was occupied at different times between the NVA, Viet Cong, and... And American forces, her brothers thrown out of helicopters or gone missing. She was raped next to an open grave, meant for her. We don't trust this white savior in Steve Butler, played by Tommy Lee Jones, but he wears her and us down. The America he brings her to is a carnival mirror from the world she left behind. Where once there was verdant rice patties, there is now shag carpet. Where before, Every grain of rice was considered holy. There's now an in-sync disposal for leftovers. A husband with a purpose replaced with a broken, angry man. It is as shocking and devastating as any Vietnam story we've ever seen on film. It's made even more miraculous that the actor playing Lei Lee was a woman responding to an open college casting call. I think that's one of the things that works so well in the film. Her innocence as a newly minted professional actor works in her favor her insistence on making it work feels genuine and her devastation when it doesn't feels earned looming over it all is stone who thank god takes a back seat to these performances and lets the camera linger on scenes both tranquil and suspenseful it's a film no one thought stone could make but we are glad he did we'll get the kids back to normal in no time as the hosts discuss the final chapter in Oliver Stone's Vietnam trilogy with this
1: 1993 film, Heaven and Earth.
2: Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast. It's like a dog. If we piss on a movie once, we'll piss on it twice. I'm Ben Harrison.
3: I'm Adam Pranica.
1: And I'm John Roderick, and I do not understand that intro.
3: Yeah, did we watch the same movie? That was a line in the movie.
1: It's like a dog, if he pisses on it once, he pisses on it twice?
2: Remember when she's getting kicked out of the house because she's uh, had uh, sexual intercourse with the master of the house and the lady of the house is quite cross at her?
3: Oh, I do remember, yeah. I see. the see. Uh, the lady of the house with the pearl necklaces. Yeah. Hmm. She wore a pearl necklace. <laughs>
2: Bow. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, and then that music cue plays and <laughs> yeah. there's like a montage. <laughs> Little ZZ
1: Top comes in. It's a big part of that film.
2: Yeah, it's a weird a weird choice, but a, this is an interesting movie. This is I, I feel like nobody has seen this movie. No. I think oh. it did like 5 million dollars at the box office on a 33 million dollar budget.
3: Oof. That is Ouch. not a good ratio. Uh. Oliver's don't get ratioed on this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: People were sliding into the menchies like what?
3: <laughs> yeah. Do you think it was wise to market this film as the third in a trilogy? I thought a lot about that, watching this film. Like, get ready. It's, it's the film after Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. Like, buckle up. The final chapter. This film is nothing like those films. Was it really uh, heavily marketed that way? Yeah. I gotta believe that's a part of its failure at the box office, and maybe, maybe critically also.
2: Yeah, because I feel like there's a market for this f- film that isn't necessarily, th- I mean, like when we talked about Platoon, we talked about the like getting together with your with your bros in college and, and watching this movie phenomenon. And I don't think that that demo is necessarily coming out for heaven and earth.
1: Might have showed up. For heaven and earth, and
2: and then found themselves confronted with like a super real human,
1: s- super scalded, scalded in the first twenty minutes, and then like everybody walking out, tears streaming down their 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 Boston College sweatshirts, <laughs> just like really feeling, really feeling like they don't want to go to the to the Sex on the Beach party after,
2: yeah. Crew practice is going to be really hard tomorrow morning, bro. <laughs> yeah,
1: because this movie is a, this movie is extraordinary. Yeah, and there are elements of it that clearly are Oliver Stone. Yeah, you see them throughout where you are like, oh, Oliver Stone is here now,
0: and he's <laughs> playing
1: his liar. But when I saw that this movie was critically panned in its time, or at least not celebrated, it it shocked
2: me. Yeah, I don't know if I'd ever heard of this movie.
1: No, hadn't heard of it. If it had been marketed as a follow up to Platoon, I I think I would have been curious, Platoon Curious at least.
3: <laughs> John Roderick's uh singles profile shaved four twenty friendly platoon curious. <laughs> but that's a joke. He's definitely not shaved. <laughs> <laughs> shaved from the nipples down. Uh-huh. <laughs>
1: Uh, it's it's the reverse, right? I want to yeah. wear open collared shirts, and sure. I want there to be a nice but nice hairy bush there in the middle. <laughs> you shave it into a V, but, but then everything everything below I want it to be slick, you know? Yeah, yeah.
2: you're like a dolphin. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, I mean, there is an incredible audience for this movie. You know, cinema was was trying a lot of hard things in yeah. in '93, and this movie uh, would have. I think been been well regarded by a a more sophisticated audience than just your your average sort of war movie crowd
3: I wonder to what degree JFK kind of poisoned the Oliver Stone well because I watched the director commentary of this film and he mentioned that the reaction to JFK was so overwhelming and negative that he felt compelled to just get the hell out of the country and go make another Vietnam film.
2: He went back into the left.
3: Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and I wonder if you're a... Listen to him. He's so proud of himself.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Do you remember a feeling about Oliver Stone in the early 90s that may have, I mean, that, that could confirm that suspicion that I have?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, and it, it was true for me. When JFK came out, it, it was um, it was so overwhelming in the popular culture, and such a kooky, conspiracy-addled movie full of weird, like breaking the fourth wall and talking to directly to the audience about chemtrails and and uh, you know the three hobos and whatnot, and it <laughs> and it did uh, yeah Woody Harrelson's dad, it did and what I guess Ted Cruz's dad was one of those two guys mm-hmm. too. It caused you to, cause, cause Oliver Stone had come onto the scene with such a bang in the eighties and was so celebrated. And then he made this sprawling crazy town epic and it diminished him. I think as somebody that we needed to pay close attention to what he was saying, which I think was the feeling going into JFK that this was a guy that had a that had an incredible take. JFK was just too crazy. But then he makes this movie, Heaven and Earth, which is an incredible take. And in in, in 1993, we had only just normalized our relationship with Vietnam or, or were in the process of normalizing. These were really, really current topics and really still, there was a lot of emotion around them. So this movie was should have been on the cover of Time Magazine.
3: I wonder how differently it would have been received if JFK came out after this, for example. Yeah, I, I, I think you're on to you're onto something really true there. Yeah.
2: It's also remarkable in that it's like, I think, I mean, especially in this era of his career, the only film I can think of that has a female lead.
1: That, that's one of the, uh, I think, one of the things that hit me most about this movie, even now. There aren't movies with this kind of female lead,
2: right? And and like the exploration on in a really deep and three dimensional way of like what war means to women who experience it is like it is such a unexplored area.
1: We don't use the word harrowing very often, and I hesitate to use it here because I pronounce it heroing. Heroing, yeah. But I was gripping the arms of my chair throughout the first. Hour and a half of this two and a half hour long movie just grip just dreading what was going to happen next knowing something awful was about to happen and and not in a not in like a horror film way where we I mean from the opening scene when she enters the screen and you're just like oh no oh no this movie is like this woman is going to go through hell and and I'm and I have to go with her and I spilled my popcorn my pork chop got cold. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, you set the fork down and push the pork chop away from you on the on the TV dinner tray. Yeah,
1: it turned to ash. But I, but I but I do feel if this movie came out today, it would be a respected movie.
3: And not only yeah. that, if it were to come out today, Heptule would be lauded as one of the great new actors of her time. The actress who plays Laylee Hayslip in this film is a not professional actor. Yeah. She was a casting call person who just came with a friend and auditioned and it ended up working out for her pretty extraordinary yeah
2: i mean her performance is also not necessarily one that received a ton of praise in the you know when this movie came out i think ebert like thought the movie was great and thought she was great and then there's like totally mixed reaction on the part of the rest of the Hmm. movie commentariat as far as I could tell
1: when I saw that, cause I, I went immediately after the movie to go see how many Oscars it had been nominated for.
2: Right. And when, I I, when it just I, seems like such an Oscar bait film, it's like, Oh man, this just like probably tagged like five categories at the Oscars. That yeah, year. yeah. Right. Cause it's, how a, did we all forget that it existed when it won, you know, a bunch of Oscars?
1: It's a beautiful movie too. I mean, so many beautiful, beautiful
3: shots. Uh, Can you believe this is the same Robert Richardson that did like all the Tarantino films, for example, like Robert Richardson on camera here makes great and beautiful compositions so beautiful that they're reused several times in this film. That's true. That's true. (laughs) But like there are some painterly
1: moments for sure. Yeah. yeah. In the the camera. Uh, And then I saw, as you're saying, Ben, all this, this like two and a half stars just like shitty shitty reviews
3: you know what i will say about the performance is that she is a better actor than she is a voiceover actor and yeah. i could have done without the voiceover bookends i think
2: there was a lot of voiceover in this film and and yeah. it does a couple of times feel a bit like a crutch and a, and you know it's like um it felt like a the little good fellas in,
3: in that way right
2: or like idiocracy where I'm like, mm. I kind of just want to see the movie without it. And I feel like I would maybe even get more out of it. Yeah.
1: Well, how did you feel? One of the things that, sh- that kind of surprised and uh, surprised me and confused me was that he is making a film with Vietnamese actors who are speaking to one another in Vietnam and they're speaking in English, right. but with thick Vietnamese
2: accents and also, like, occasionally saying something in Vietnamese and then restating it in English.
1: Yeah. And, and it seemed like he was so close to just making a movie where if they had just been speaking in Vietnamese and he'd had subtitles... Yeah. Um, I don't think there would have been any... I think it would have been a better experience because we're watching... You know, you're having that problem of the ESL problem where two characters, a father and daughter, are standing together in their own village and they're saying, I... I go to big city now and you don't, you know, you don't get a sense of their intelligence or their, right, their unity with their
2: culture and place and time. Because they're not speaking yeah. Vietnamese to each other as a second language.
1: It was a weird choice considering how much of this movie he really tried to make true to the experience of this woman in Vietnam, true to the experience. You know, he didn't shy away from their, Closeness to the Viet Cong at first, you know, he was really unapologetic why he wouldn't have just Put it in Vietnamese the first half of the movie and then it would have been a shocker When the second right. half of the movie is in English and when we hear her speaking this kind of uh, You know a, a learned language
2: Well, it's kind of the letters from Iwo Jima problem, right? damned if you do damned if you don't with the American box office I don't think that it's easy to get a big, a big uh, you know, opening weekend with a movie that's in a different language for most of it, unless it's an Aramaic and it's about Jesus.
1: Right. <laughs> I wonder if, he, if looking back, he wishes that he had just put that in Vietnamese, if he was going to lose all that money
2: anyway. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It feels like a very 1993, you know, splitting the baby kind of decision.
1: Yeah.
3: It's a compromise. He did express some regret about not going farther in a couple of areas and, and being as restrained as an Oliver Stone can be in some of these creative decisions. He does talk a lot about um, how specifically he cast for well-English-speaking Vietnamese or Asian actors to, to play these roles. Like, that was very specifically a goal of his. And... I might disagree with you guys on how that dialogue is received. Like, I don't think we get the Julia Nixon and Rambo 2 problem in this film. It didn't clang for me in the way that it sounds like it did for you guys. I mean, it's certainly not that bad. Um, It's not... It doesn't feel fake.
1: Yeah. Um, Because she was like a Chinese actor that grew up in Oakland. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
2: I think that's a totally different issue. I think the issue is that it, like... When you have two guys with English accents dressed as Nazis talking to each other with their English accents, you don't imagine that the Nazis had unsophisticated patterns of speech, but because this is like ESL English that they're speaking to each other, it indicates something different, you know, it indicates like a lack of sophistication, which is not like yeah. you can't you can tell that that's not textually what they're what's intended but it kind of comes across that way like on an emotional level or something. Mm.
1: Right, and they're not you, it has to inhibit them as actors because they're not able to communicate all the
3: the nuance of their circumstances. Yeah, yet. right. But what they are able to express is the emotional truth of their circumstances and I thought in that way their performances were great across the board agreed agreed i i loved the performances you know um the
1: the actor who played her father he was also not a professional actor he became famous in that in the movie the killing fields which we still haven't seen but he actually is a survivor of the cambodian genocide Uh, and the whole first half of the movie i was like i am watching a really amazing film um how have i never seen this how have i never heard of this
2: it's one of the few movies we've seen that really made war feel like this kind of emergent force that is impossible to control or tame all of our characters are just kind of being blown around on the winds of these like geopolitical things that are happening
0: the french the japanese not americans all of us.
1: it's an unusual perspective to watch a war unfold from the static position of a village we're always with the travelers right in a war movie we're always with the soldiers and to be in a bucolic village and then see the first incursion of the you know the rebels first come and they try to explain their position and everybody in the village is like yeah you know you're right we should resist the imperialist and then that first time when the south vietnamese army shows up and they just seem so coarse and other you know they're 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 fellow countrymen but they just seem like completely uh like an invading army and they have those strange american advisors who are kind of standing around with sunglasses on
2: that helicopter that comes down almost on top of her is like such a powerful moment just how much it stands out from the super traditional and Rustic environment. This like it's like a spaceship, you know.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The noise and wind countered against the peace and the quiet of the rice paddies. Yeah, I mean, like a little bit
2: implausible that she didn't notice it coming up on her. Like it's it's like it's like fifteen feet over her head when she's like, "Wait, what's going on?"
1: <laughs> the technology of a helicopter is just is just amazing. It's not necessarily a war making device. It's this crazy flying. Machine, and yet it arrives in her village, and all that technology, all that noise, all that strum and drong, and it brings nothing. Right? It's not there for any good reason. It's not. It's not even that it arrived to blow everything up. It just came to deliver a couple of guys in sunglasses, and then they take off and go somewhere else. And from from the perspective of someone who had been living in a world where where none of that existed to watch something like that come into your life and bring nothing and do nothing.
2: Right, like, well this you, is like the we're gonna go win their hearts and minds moment, yeah, right? right and it's right. like, oh yeah, that wouldn't work. <laughs> right, and
1: from from our perspective watching Vietnam from from America and thinking about it as much as we've done, it's just never, it's never as clear as it is in this movie how ludicrous the entire proposition was to to roll into these villages in a half track sit them all down and say now remember communism's bad here's a hershey bar uh we're out of here now and
2: that hamburger we would leave, hamburger bang bang uh,
1: yeah right that we would leave any impression other than
2: I'm sorry. That's cheeseburger, cheeseburger, bang bang. Cheeseburger, I don't know. cheeseburger, bang, bang It's been a long time since we've recorded an episode of this show, and I'm really, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm out of practice. Yeah,
1: where are your, where are all your catchphrases, Ben? I don't
2: know. That's Ooh, your catchphrase,
1: littlest midshipman. I know, buddy. I mean, if you're going to throw a catchphrase back at a guy, yeah, I know, I know. I've, I'm a guy. I'm a guy. I'm sorry. It's all right. Anyway. I... I That was some of the most powerful stuff at the start of the movie was, uh, and I think what would have read as pretty radical in 93. The stuff that put us in the shoes of villagers in Vietnam who had no politics prior to the the beginnings of this conflict and no exposure to technology and no sort of sense of global picture. They were just still living a, A traditional lifestyle.
2: Right, a lifestyle that probably people 500 and 1,000 years ago in that same place were living.
1: And how how there was no upside to Americans. Americans brought nothing but cigarettes, booze, candy bars, and then eventually, you know, death, destruction, rape, violence, disease.
2: There's... A lot of torture and rape in this movie and that's something that Oliver Stone has not shied away from depicting I think that this being the like this all befalling our, our main character means something different than just kind of some anonymous women in a village and platoon for yes. example yes like the amount of indignity that is visited on her in like really in like the first 30 minutes of the film is pretty astonishing it's astonishing that she has the strength of character to like bounce back from it honestly
3: i think we haven't mentioned up until now that like the story depicted here is a true story based on a book that was written by this character
2: yeah who appears in the film, the, the lady that wrote the two books that yeah. the script is adapted from is the uh is the lady working in the um in the pawn shop where she tries to sell her jewelry. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah my sense was the first two acts of the film were pretty much taken directly from her book, and then the third act kind of conflated a couple of different marriages.
3: Yeah, because the Steve Butler character was a composite. In
1: watching the film, I, my takeaway was that every single person in Vietnam survived some variation of that amount of violence, brutality, exploitation, death. Like, there's no one in that country that escaped. Because how could they? It's a tiny yeah. country. How, I mean, Vietnam is, it, you could, it, at its narrowest, is, a, is a, like an incredibly small num- number of miles.
3: There's a strange compounding shame, too, to what you described in that even if you were fortunate enough to survive or escape and then return, you were made to feel ashamed of that.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, she, she her mom spent her do- dowry to get her out of prison, but she was immediately branded a traitor because right. nobody could believe. And Oh, and, and that, that great moment where the Viet Cong are saying, you know, what did you tell them? that they released you and she said, oh, my mom spent
3: all of our money. And they were like, oh, rich girl. Yeah. There was no answer that would have satisfied at that point. Yeah. And it's like, rich girl? Yeah. There's no rich girls. (laughs) They've all (laughs) gone too far. (laughs) 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 They're gonna get tortured (laughs) anyway. Oh, Jesus.
1: (laughs) (laughs) she couldn't win right even in the end when she came back rich with three healthy sons to visit the village her brother said you know all you've done is make us look all that's going to happen from this is that we're going to get rejected by the rest of the village after you leave
3: how safe did you feel i know i know we're jumping to the end by talking about that scene but i felt like we were the film was gathering itself into a conclusion and that emotionally I was safe because I felt like we were five minutes away from the credits. And then that brother delivered that monologue and I was shattered all over again. That was an amazing moment of unexpected drama.
2: Yeah. Adam, you watched this movie twice because we were supposed to record this a while ago and uh, missed our window. i That was like the first thing I thought of when I finished watching the movie is, I cannot imagine watching this movie twice in rapid succession. Did uh, did anything emerge for you on the second watch through that?
3: The second watch through was with Oliver Stone in the form oh, of his commentary. And so I was able to to glean some interesting stuff from that. One of the, I would recommend if you love this film i would recommend that you do listen to the commentary version i think there are some interesting kernels especially in the first half hour but then there's about an hour in the middle third of the commentary where oliver stone just talks to you about his worldview, <laughs> and not about the movie at all it almost felt like it was lifted from an interview and then toward the end we're back talking about the film again huh Uh, But he had some interesting things to say about uh, his casting process, for example, and about working with Robert Richardson specifically, and uh, his deep sadness that not as many people as he hoped had watched a thing that he felt really strongly about.
2: Yeah, he said in interviews that this is his favorite of his films.
3: Yeah. This was early days of the Clinton administration.
1: Clinton had been accused of being a draft dodger and a Vietnam War shirker by his opponents.
3: Boy, what a presidential scandal. I know, can
1: you imagine? Holy shit. That a president (laughs) would have smoked marijuana and avoided Vietnam? Wow.
2: Whew, how did he ever get elected? Fucking liberal media.
1: But those first couple of years of his presidency, he was trying to normalize relations with Vietnam. And there was a lot of... uh, There was a lot of suspicion that he was a liberal and a softy and Vietnam was still our enemy. This suspicion coming from the, you know, the predictable quarters. But the United States didn't actually normalize relations with Vietnam, both political relations with Vietnam until 1995.
2: We did not lose Vietnam. It was a tie.
1: So this movie was actually, it actually came out in the midst of like really heavy geopolitical Movement And we've talked about it before. A big contention in that normalization was the POW MIA issue. The Republicans were making a lot of hay about the fact that we couldn't normalize relations with them until they accounted for every last POW. And um, and so this was all like this was this was fraught topic. Yeah. And I th- I, th- I don't I don't I honestly don't think that that maybe we were ready for this film.
3: Yeah.
2: Because, yeah, this is definitely not throwing meat to the dopes, like the you know, POW MIA issue is not in this film even a little bit. No. There are almost no sympathetic American soldier characters in it.
1: Or, sim- or sympathetic soldiers at all. I mean, the only right. sympathetic soldier really is her younger brother who goes off to join the Viet Cong and we never see him again.
2: The last... Yeah. Like the last sympathetic soldier is looking over his shoulder ruefully as he walks away.
1: (laughs) Right. Going like, well, I'm in it now, but yeah, nobody, there's no aspect. And I think that's what, another thing I like about it is that it did not, I was very afraid when the Viet Cong first arrived in the film and gave that rousing speech where they said, you know, Vietnam has been oppressed by the Japanese, by the Chinese, by the French and, um,
2: yeah, I was like signing up for. I was like looking online to sign up to become a Viet Cong. Yeah, in that speech. well, you know, you're already
1: a Viet Cong <laughs> honorary member just by <laughs> just by growing up in Berkeley.
2: They weren't allowed to shoot a lot of this in Vietnam because the Vietnamese government hated the script.
0: Men are like dogs, pissing on posts.
1: When she go- moves to Saigon and begins her relationship with the with the rich Catholic. Young Prince and his westernized wife, it turns into a second movie.
3: It's such a weird trick that this film plays on recalibrating a viewer's feelings about uh safety and kindness. As soon as Lei Lee works at the mansion, like it's a fucked up relationship that he gets that she gets into with the master of the house. but like even that master slave kindness. Is better than the rape at the entrance of her grave right scene that we saw ten minutes before, like, like by virtue of its proximity in the film, it feels better for some reason, which is not right, but she does you know? that
1: she does an amazing amount of acting in that scene where where you see her fall in love with him, yeah, and it's not just like now I feel safe, but she really she's just a young
3: girl, yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean she's falling in love under under duress, but but it does feel authentic.
3: And it and tender. Tender. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: then that all falls apart. Yeah. And then she's selling cigarettes on the street. I mean the the, the hardest scene was the one where she's out selling cigarettes. She's got a little kid. She's got a three year old or whatever at this point. And that big American MP comes up and says and greets her familiarly. Familiar familiarly familiarly interrogate
3: one of those will work
1: familiarly and she's like oh hey big mike what's up and he says hey i'll give you uh you know there these two guys are short timers and they want to have sex with you i told them that you were clean and here's 50 bucks and she was like no way and you just feel such a betrayal like she knows this guy, it's Big Mike. Yeah. He's an yeah. MP.
2: Yeah,
3: They, have, they living... have a
2: personal relationship, but also she's like, like the commodity for sale is her body. And he is and like he totally- And he pitches it
3: to her as a thing that could change her life yeah, hey, for this the is... better. Like 400 bucks, well, come on. But what's
1: crazy is he's like 50 bucks, yeah. and she says no, and he's like, okay, 100 bucks. And she's like, no. And he says, "You're driving a hard bargain." All right. too. Yeah. And what you realize is he charged those guys five hundred bucks.
2: Yeah. This is yeah. like when I uh, when I went to the car dealership. I wound up walking out of there with the car paying ten thousand dollars more than sticker.
1: Yeah. Did you get the <laughs> undercoating? It comes from straight from the factory. You know, car yeah. was clean though, Ben. It yeah. was a clean car. But that but that feeling like there that she just had no. Now she was what she she was a place that we think of as safe, right? On base, yeah. you're safe from violence here. You're safe from hunger. You're on base, but she was.
2: But she knows better, right? She's she knows found better. the. She's found the bodies in the in the garbage heap, right?
1: Ugh. She makes it all the way to the scene where we're introduced to um, Tommy Lee Jones.
2: There's like the perfect halfway mo- moment in the movie,
1: and Tommy Lee Jones. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I did not like him <laughs> when he showed up. I did not like his vibe.
2: I was so perplexed by him because I couldn't tell if the movie thought he was supposed to be likable or not for a long time. Right. He's he's such a layered character because it does seem like he kind of fetishizes her, but he also seems to love her. Like, you understand why she can fall in love with him when he almost stabbed her with a knife because of what she's been through. Uh, like, he says, like, racist things right to her face, but also, like, makes arrangements for her to be rescued by a helicopter. Like, like that second helicopter coming in, it represents a totally different thing. It was such a uh, an interesting contrast to the first helicopter in the movie. Like, suddenly... The helicopter represents salvation and not the destruction of everything you know.
3: Nice film studies thesis. Hello, <laughs> good work. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here! Get out of here! That's also the scene where I noticed that Tommy Lee Jones's uh, weapon had a muzzle suppressor on it, which to me indicated his special forces relationship. Did that? Did that trigger that thought for you also? And that maybe there was maybe something deeper to his soldier character that we weren't meant to know at that point. From the moment he arrives, you know, his rank and insignia
1: and the way he kind of carries himself. He's not just a Marine who's who's doing base duty. Um, But that scene where she's taking off in the helicopter and he runs in his tiger stripe camos. That's really the only scene
3: in the movie that is. Like a war movie, yeah, combatty, and and consider how that shot is framed. It's all uh, point of view from Lele, and it's not territorial. You're not seeing the war action coming towards the viewer. You're just aimed down. Yeah, all you see is him and and his uh, and his fellow soldiers.
1: He's in a commanding posture, and he's and you can see like he's going into the bush at this point.
3: He's looking to take the fight
2: to... Yeah, he's looking yeah. for a
1: route into into the fight.
2: The goof section on IMDb usually has lots and lots of goofs. This time it only had one about this film. Huh. And uh, that's, that usually is not great for this segment. And I, have, I usually have to go look elsewhere for things that are wrong with the movie. But I actually kind of liked this one. Uh, when Steve picks up lilay and her kids when the south is being overrun he flies in on an army helicopter despite the fact that he and his friends are all in the marines
1: seems like a thing where maybe you would have just jumped on any old helicopter that was around that you could have gotten on
2: and also if he's like if he's like doing black ops shit maybe the equipment available to you is slightly different than i don't know
1: but but Ben I think you're I think you're very observant when you say that the film doesn't make it clear whether we're supposed to like Tommy Lee Jones or not. At this point in the movie if you introduced a white soldier who was kind, I would accept it because I'm desperate for it. Everyone is so bad.
2: It's so unusual to like meet a character in a movie in any context where the movie doesn't tell you whether it's a good character or not immediately.
1: But kind of just like she does, we cling to him because he's the only, uh, he's the only route she and we have out of Vietnam. And when he comes and saves her at the embassy, when she's standing there at the embassy and they're just like, no, he's missing in action. We got nothing for you. And he comes across the street. It really is like, you feel like, oh, he's the hero. He does save us here.
3: Yeah.
2: Right. And
1: he does. He gets us out of Vietnam.
2: And he seems like a, such a stud in Vietnam. And then when you get stateside and see him in that context, he's like, oh, he's like kind of a loser.
1: Yeah, every scene where the two of them were in together, just the difference in their size and watching her toughness come into action in America and, and then, I mean, how she, how she how she had to project size.
3: She does that with her hair, <laughs> 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 that's for sure. <laughs> As soon as she gets to America, you know that's a great observation, John. And I think they block the two actors very specifically for that reason in their courtship. uh, I noticed that there was rarely, if ever, a moment where Tommy Lee Jones's character was on top of hers, for example. Mm -hmm. But when they start to fight in America, their size disparity is made clear in a couple of scenes. One of which is where. He stands next to her and then screams at the top of her head. Yeah, down on her. Down, like almost totally angled down on her. And that is something that I don't feel like I see very often ever in a movie or in life. That angle that those two took at each other during that argument. He's like screwing her into the ground with his screaming at her. So at this point in the
1: movie, I was thinking... You know, our, our regular segment uh, came to mind where I was like, is this a war movie? Like, we're in a domestic drama now. Yeah. We're, we're not in Vietnam anymore, we're in Southern California and we're in a broken marriage. And the marriage is broken for a lot of different reasons, but they were both, they were both traumatized by the war. It's tearing him to pieces and somehow it's gluing her together. But the war is the war is a distant memory now and this is fully half of the movie. I th- I don't think there's any question whether or not this is a war movie, but
3: it's not only a war movie. Yeah. Steve Butler's self-destruction in many other depictions of the soldier returning home, we get the The war having caused that self-destruction in The Returning Soldier. And I feel like this movie takes such a different path to that in that it is Lee Lei's forgiveness that triggers the point of no return for him. Like her constant willingness to put him back together and forgive him over the long haul. This is something that he can't accept. And I think that's the reason that he kills himself in a strange way. It's not that he can't get the war out of his system. I think he sees a person who is able to survive and thrive after the war in a way that he just can't. And I think that comparison is totally destructive to him.
1: Because he was a loser going into the war. Yeah. He found a place in the world where he had a set of skills that were valuable Mm -hmm. it's which is that he could kill people and now after the war he's back he's back to being a loser
2: yeah and she's willing to compromise so much of what she is in order to make it work with him i mean i feel like the moment the the last moment we see him before we find out he's taken his own life is her on the phone with him saying like i'll start going to church with you i'll take down my buddhist shrine Uh, like everything i hold dear that makes our relationship a problem I'll get rid of yeah in service of getting right with you and his performance in that in that scene is amazing yeah it's it's a, it's so interesting that it's over the phone you know like he he's not playing off of anybody but you see him overwhelmed by the generosity she's showing him the emotional generosity that she's showing him and you see that he is not equal to that generosity
1: although even then whether he was breaking down and was going to be a better man uh you know his suicide took me by surprise not completely by surprise but but you know the film did a good job of
2: yeah of, i think in retrospect it it's, it's yeah. that but yeah I, I agree that it seems like at any moment he could start to be More emotionally vulnerable with her, and start to, you know, reassess like who he is and what he can be in the world.
1: Yeah, this movie is very um, hard on Christianity. There's no instance where Christianity is um, mentioned or portrayed where it isn't seen as, uh, like an instrument of the oppressor. Yeah, and she. She maintains i mean there's a there's a very strong Buddhist thread running throughout the film she she is restored by Buddhism multiple times we see that Buddha statue in her village multiple times in flashback and in in uh, it's a it's a motif a light motif
2: yeah and and like maybe the second most powerful monologue in the film is the is the Buddhist master that comes over to her house and counsels her on what to do about her marriage?
1: So that 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 contrast between Christianity and Buddhism, I I I wondered whether that was Oliver Stone's worldview that he was sort of um, that that he found a way to express, or whether that was really in her book and her experience of coming to America and feeling like. Her, her Buddhism, that Buddhism is strong enough that it can translate even into the shopping malls of Southern California?
3: I can tell you that it's both. And Oliver Stone actually wanted to more diametrically oppose the two religions in this film. There were pages and pages that, that made it a Buddhism versus Christianity conflict, uh, underpinning many of the interpersonal conflicts that husband and wife have here. Uh, but... Oliver Stone was reluctant to go there because he felt like he had a lot to lose as a filmmaker against an American audience who had already grown hostile to his storytelling methods. Like He was like, this may be too far for me to go. I really want a lot of people to see heaven and earth. Maybe I'll just leave that out of the story. And he, that's one of the things he regrets is like, had I known that unfortunately so few people saw this film, I would have gone deeper into those elements that I wanted to. And I, I just felt, I felt like I wanted to be a little safer in that way.
2: Interesting. Casting Jeffrey Jones as the minister was pretty prescient in that way.
3: <laughs> yeah. He right. a
2: more powerful conflict <laughs> over time.
3: Pretty crazy. <laughs> pretty crazy. His
1: little cameo. Yee. Yeah. Uh, so that's how they do it in their family. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when the South Vietnamese army arrives in her village at the very beginning the the way she described them is, well, they are Vietnamese, but they're Catholics. And then her relationship with the, with the, her master in Saigon, the mistress catches her praying to her husband's ancestors. And it's an open sort of conflict where she's like, why are you praying to his ancestors? Like, the, like she knows what it means, but she's Catholic. And, and, um, and they are Catholic, and then she moves to Southern California, and they are they're, What are they? Non-denominationally California Christianity.
0: I make the money, man. I roll the nickels. The game's mine. I
2: don't really know my my Christian sects sex the way I should. Well,
1: as a member, of, uh, honorary member of the Viet Cong, <laughs> you wouldn't have been taught that stuff in your yeah. In your, they all your, look the same to me. Your Oakland Yeah. <laughs> <madrasa. laughs>
2: I mean, my third eye was open at a very young age, John. I know.
3: I know. I, know. I wish I could close it. L.A. jeans, but an Oakland madrasa. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so were there any clunkers in this movie for you?
2: It was a hard movie for me to watch. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't watch it in, in one go. You know, like there, there is some redemption in the film. She gets some redemption from her mom in the end. She gets some redemption from herself. I think maybe she mostly gets resent- redemption from herself, but it's it's really hard to watch. I, I I wish more people had seen it too. I think that it made me think about and understand Vietnam in a different way. And and I'm really impressed by how human the Li Le character is and how sensitively portrayed she is i wouldn't have guessed that you know go like looking, yeah going in looking at oliver stone being the director i couldn't have imagined that it would be the film that it was but it's uh i, th- I think it, there are some parts that that don't necessarily work but it's uh it's really worth watching
1: when i see a movie like this that is that's really trying to be true to the time and place, but it's scored with a big treacly sound stagey orchestral score. At least in this instance, it located this film to me in the 90s rather than in its own period. And I was grateful, grateful that we didn't get a soundtrack of The Doors and... Credence Clearwater Revival.
3: Yeah, if you, if you bet no CCR in a Vietnam War film, I mean that was a plus four hundred underdog. Exactly. Go ahead and, and go ahead and cash your ticket. And we got a lot. We got we got some sixties music
1: coming from transistor radios in the streets, but the the movie never did never cut to slow motion helicopters with "This Is the End" playing, and that was great. But it was but there was some heartstringy strings in the, in the first half and toward the end that I felt like were manipulative. Now, maybe that's a thing that I shouldn't notice. Maybe that's just how films are made. Um, and maybe it needed it because to not have it would have negatively impacted it. I kind of don't know enough about the language to know what, what role he expected those strings to play. Do you guys have any thoughts?
2: <sighs> no, I, mean, I I agree with you. I mean, I think that like one of the big knocks against Spielberg is that the music is always kind of telling you how to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like one of the strengths of this movie is that it it makes some choices not to tell you how to feel in certain parts. And I felt that that uneasiness was a really interesting thing to experience while watching it uh, of, I, I am really being asked to form my own conclusions here. Like when Tommy Lee Jones says, I need a good Oriental woman. And that is being played for finally she's found true love. But like, I'm going like, Oh my God, that's so fucked up though. Like just the like premise of that statement is so fucked up. And the tension between those things like that, the, the movie does nothing to break that tension. It lets it lets you sit with it until he resolves into being a total head case.
3: He's so complex, Ben. Like on the one hand you get something like that, but then you get him defending Lelay at the Thanksgiving table in front of everyone. Yeah.
2: Right. Like but also like just on the heels of like kind of talking shit about her with Dale Dye, like yeah. at the same table. Yeah.
1: Yeah, although he's not he's not into Dale Dye. I mean he's pissed off. Yeah, I think that's part of part of what ramps him up to his. I
2: think he like he takes a turn in that scene. Like I think that initially he's kind of they're kind of like yucking it up and, you know, knocking back shots. And then and then when he kind of realizes that everybody at the table is is othering her, he really does defend her.
1: Yeah. You give her a break, Bernie. She can't eat for her whole damn country.
2: And like musically, there are moments that it does. It tells you what to feel and it is treacly like the composer is like a new age artist kitaro i think uh-huh japanese composer um and and there are some heavy-handed moments but i think like the mo the heavy-handed music in movies seems to me like the the rule not the exception and and the moments that were the exception were the were the real standouts in this film for me
3: it's a little bit of its time in that way, too. I think the early 90s do not reflect well on movie scoring in that way.
2: Yeah. One early 90s choice I wanted to talk about was the, like, ultra-wide-angle anamorphic lenses that they use when she gets to America and starts seeing, like, double-wide refrigerators and supermarkets yeah. and stuff
1: the The scenes where she's walking down the aisle of the supermarket and the, and it's just taking in the the orgy of canned food felt a, like the one cartoony moment in the whole film yeah and and he's trying to communicate a real thing that happened that that scene where they're just throwing giant scraps of meat and vegetables down the the garbage disposal. <laughs> uh, just like, oh, you know, scraping plates into the sink and she's looking at it like.
3: That felt so good, fellas, to me. Like when Lorraine Bracco marries Ray Liotta, and like she starts doing the voiceover about what it's like to be a mafia doll, a mafia wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Good, even down to like the hair and makeup that transition. Quick, you have to cover that cross. You know, we've talked about this a couple of times in the film. How you you're made to feel safe very briefly before that illusion is. Spoiled, and this is one of those scenes too. It, there's some levity to this. Her walking down the aisle and wanting to fill up her cart with all the bags of rice it can carry, but as soon as they get to the checkout lane, the magic is gone when she's mean mugged by the checkout lady.
1: Although, you feel as she starts to become more resourceful within the Vietnamese uh, expatriate community in Southern California, and she realizes oh, I can get money to start a business because we have a separate idea about how loans work. We loan money to each other. And she starts to, she starts to have a separate community. You do get that feeling like she's going to be okay. There's never a safe space. Right before Tommy Lee Jones kills himself, you think, oh, he's going to kill her now. Although she's voiceovering this movie, so sh- she can't die. There's no last tragedy waiting in the wings for her. Right.
3: I was not expecting, after having seen all of these moments of brutality, to feel the kind of serenity and acceptance that Lee Lei felt. But I did. I thought the ending to this film was fairly magical in its ability to pull that off. It really makes a great case for Buddhism. I think, and I'm not saying that to be flip, like, wow, she has gone through so much and has come away on the other side pretty okay.
2: It does, but it also, I think, makes the case that she is has a remarkable inner strength, but it doesn't shame anybody that didn't have that. You know, the way that Tommy Lee Jones is broken, you know, you, you come to understand how much he's been victimized by circumstance and he makes bad choices and um does bad things but you can see like how human those follies are you know
3: i'm still willing to blame his character for being a bad person though i mean is that the wrong way to (laughs) To look at him, he did bad things. He was a victim of his circumstances, but he didn't try to change at all. He leaned into his deficiencies, if anything.
2: Yeah, I think that uh, I kept thinking about that Upton Sinclair quote. It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Like all of the opportunity that he has presented in life is couched in war and the furthering of it for profit, you know? Yeah. And he is good at that. And that's, that's a non-starter for her.
3: I just think you've achieved a serenity that I can't, Ben, because I can't forgive Tommy Lee Jones' character. <laughs> I think he was a piece of shit.
2: I mean, I, I agree that he's a piece of shit. And I, I wish he had the like inner strength that she did and could accept the idea of like, abandoning that aspiration for himself. But I couldn't understand why somebody wouldn't when there's $65,000 a year job being dangled in front of them.
1: I mean, on a macro scale, we watch a movie like this, we see her hero journey, and it's tempting to say, like, she is an exceptional, one-of-a-kind survivor. But I think this experience that she had... Was shared by millions of people in Vietnam, and a lot of them survived. Survived worse even than she did. So, although although we want to look at her and say that she is extraordinary, and I think she is, it's also a movie about how you can survive. How it's in us all, in a way, to survive. Um, we think of you know we spend a lot of time thinking about minor brutalities, microaggressions. But you can suffer through some awful, awful things in life and come out the other side. Still mostly whole, but not everyone can.
2: Yeah. And it's unpredictable right. who can and can't.
1: And people that seem the strongest maybe can't and people that you would look at and say, this person is has no... I mean, she had no education, no money, no power of any kind and yet and yet found a path but at the end when she comes back to Vietnam she's an American and her children are Americans and she's proud of it and they're proud of her and now we're forced to contend with the fact that all the things that are terrible about America all the 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 pain and destruction that America brought to the world brings to the world brought to her world It's only in America that she could have found that whole other life. America is not incidental to that. Someone who had been on her journey could land and be free of that shit from her village where people are shaming her for her past and make a new life. Admittedly, you know, under a halo of hairspray and Southern California kind of uh, bangles. (laughs) <laughs> so we're not really let off easy there either. You can go through this entire movie hating the United States and everything it re- represents. But at the end, you you can't you you would have to turn a blind eye to the conclusion of the film, which is like, yeah. And the United States is still the place in the world where everyone is afforded a, an opportunity and where she co- she was able to convert. To uh, not convert to religion, but I mean, she converted to a first down. Like, ugh, I really, I really got to the end of the movie and felt almost obligated to watch it again. But I didn't have, I didn't have the strength. I also didn't. It was four o'clock in the morning. I didn't have the time. <laughs> the more I killed, the more they gave me to kill.
3: It's the most important part of the show, I think. Mm-hmm. I bet you, I bet you think that. It's the part where we review the war film we've just discussed. And we review every war film using a film's own rating system. This is crucial. It's so we don't compare war film to war film. And maybe most crucially in this instance, we don't compare Oliver Stone war film to Oliver Stone war film. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what the rating system was for Platoon, but you can't use that rating system for this. No, it wouldn't apply at all. It'd be impossible. Uh, there is an object in the film that I thought best represented a rating system for heaven and earth. There's the moment during the courtship between Steve Butler and Laylee Lee where it's not the first date. There's a, it's maybe not the second or third date, but they, they skip forward in time a little bit and he's, he's brought her a box full of gifts and these gifts are for her son specifically. And inside the box is one of those piece of shit, wind-up, panda, symbol playing like, racket makers. And that is such a gift from someone to a recipient that they don't know very well, right? <laughs> it's one of those things, it's an impulse buy that you see at the check stand. Like, I got this box of other shit. Like, maybe, maybe the kid will like this thing. Everyone likes a, a wind-up racket maker. And it made me think about...
1: All of your Christmases as a yeah, child?
3: Yeah, <laughs> every Christmas I've ever had. But also like the mind of a filmmaker who's trying to give something to an audience. Like Oliver Stone is trying to like grab you by the back of the neck and show you what the Vietnam War did to people who worked in the rice paddies during the war. Like she's try- he's trying to show this heroic story, this transformation that this person makes and their ability to come out fine on the other side, this this ability to recover. And I was so, like, I was tormented while watching the film because I had this, this conflict in my mind, like, if it's Oliver Stone, how sentimental can you possibly be? John, you talk all, all the time about sensing the hand of a filmmaker at work. And I came into this conversation expecting to excoriate this film based on my inability to believe oliver stone's sentimentality here this is a guy who made salvador which was basically a thinly veiled sex tourism film and what we see here is i mean a different kind of sex tourism happening and the relationships between that that white people have with with vietnamese women is gross and awful like i was so conflicted throughout but i think the conversation that i've had with you guys has made me appreciate this film on so many other levels and has removed the hand of oliver stone and made me look at it on an individual level instead of as a part of a filmmaker's eve (laughs) and i think that's crucial in enjoying a film like this not that Enjoyment is really the feeling, but like appreciating a film's greatness in this way. And I thought this film was awesome. Before talking with you, I thought I would give this three symbol slapping panda toys, uh, but this is four and a half panda symbol toys. I think this is one of those films that I'm really glad that I saw thanks to a project like this one. And I think and hope more people should see it.
2: I, I do hope more people see it. I think, uh, you know, go in knowing that it is going to be a challenge. You know, this is not one of the those films that's fun to watch. And for long stretches, it's actively unpleasant. But I do feel like this is one of those cases where, you know, an artist is actually able to access some insight about, the way the world works and yeah like i think that oliver stone you know i do i do think he completes a trilogy about vietnam here this is the hard, the highest degree of difficulty of the three films and i know that we haven't watched Born on the fourth of july yet for this show but it, it really does put you in the shoes i mean <laughs> i guess i can't say it really does but to me it feels like it really does put you in the shoes of a young woman in vietnam and 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 what her experience is like and like weirdly the other film that I felt like made me understand Vietnam from the Vietnamese perspective the most was Operation Dumbo Drop I hope we'll watch some films from the Vietnamese cinema eventually that deal with this conflict but I thought I I, yeah I'll come in at a at at four panda symbol uh, rating for this film
1: We've, we've already mentioned it came after JFK, but also right before natural born killers like Oliver Stone was not an unknown property. And he wasn't just languishing in the, the, the backlash of JFK like this was Oliver Stone's moment. Uh, but both of those movies were big, splashy, attention getting blockbusters. I don't know. I didn't have very high expectations. Uh, and it grabbed me from the very beginning from the from the first shot of that valley there were four or five things in the film that I where I felt a little bit taken out of the movie and and put into a film studies moment or two but on the whole I feel like this movie really succeeded it's uncomfortable to watch as you say Ben but it isn't a, it isn't a slog it doesn't feel like this is a film that we all have to watch even though it's not fun but it's a for me a great movie i have no complaint with the acting i have no complaint with the script i can't find any of my normal complaints i'm sure they're around here somewhere <laughs> i mean you know adam's adam's here in my house takes yeah, that's a, takes not always great takes half a star off of anything
2: yeah
1: but i can't find a way to ding this movie Everything in the movie serves a purpose within the movie and the world beyond. I think Oliver Stone tried to do something here and he succeeded. And so I give it five stars. Wow. Or, I'm sorry. Five clanging noise making. I would have called it a monkey. You keep saying panda. It was a panda. Five clanging cheapo like street fair symbol
3: pandas. Five of them. Score. Who's your guy, though, John? There's so many bad guys in this movie. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, so many bad.
3: A bad, lot of options for Ben, bad obviously. Guys. Yeah, but for sure. you and me, it's a more difficult challenge. Why,
1: why don't we start with Ben? He has all of his his uh, his Viet Cong
3: pals to pick from. <laughs> all of his classmates. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh. My guy comes very early in the film, I think probably in the first dozen or so shots, just kind of establishing the gorgeous bucolic environment. Um, but uh, pretty quickly, it cuts to a crowd of dozens and dozens of ducks running down a path. Those ducks are my guy. The ducks are your guy. Yeah, I love those guys. <laughs> Look at them. <laughs> just a big old <laughs> crowd of ducks running toward the camera. <laughs>
3: wow okay i guess i mean i guess i'm gonna pick a tank as my guy like can we do this ducks. all right adam who's your guy uh my guy is mama mama goes through almost as much as lilay and you could make the argument that she goes through maybe even more more yeah because she also lost children yeah um She is so strong and so brave and in the face of uh, awful loss does not like break, break in a way that you would (laughs) break in a way that Tommy Lee Jones does, you know, and she sticks up for her daughter at every turn, every fucking turn, especially to that, to the rich guy in the mansion. like she is constantly on the bottom end of the power imbalance in any situation by virtue of her social standing or how she looks or that her family has either died or made mistakes that have reflected poorly on her and everyone else and yet at the end when lee Lei returns with her family like she is welcome she's welcomed at the at the table she wants to enjoy the Pharaoh Rocher candy. Like she's willing to achieve the same sort of feeling that her daughter does at the end. Like she's open to that. And I thought that was an amazing story for her as a character. So mama's my guy. She's chewing uh, betel
1: nuts through the entire movie. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, her teeth are red stained and we never, it's never referred to like it's no one ever. Yes. Mama's
3: played by Joan Chen, who is a like legacy great actress, beautiful, and like is willing to go full monster in this film. Full betel nut, yeah. And a local woman, really, really great performance. Yeah.
1: Well, this is somewhat uh, unprecedented, but I think my guy is Oliver Stone in right. this movie. Wow. You know, we've talked about his hero journey personally went to Yale dropped out went and taught English in Vietnam joined the merchant Marines you know young guy young privileged guy trying to find himself in the world ended up signing up for Vietnam requesting combat duty went and fought and really fought and then came back and took filmmaking classes with Martin Scorsese and started working in film and he made platoon which described his, you know, kind of fictionalized, his personal experiences in Vietnam. He made Born on Fourth of July, which was working from Ron Kovic's autobiography. But this movie, if you think about him in 1966 in Vietnam, saying one day I'm gonna make a movie about this, and his experience of being there kind of like we imagine that the, you know, I'm, I'm sure that is how we would be there thinking, you know, these are beautiful people. This is a beautiful country. We're ruining it. I want to make a movie about that. I want to communicate to the world what I saw, but he actually did. There were thousands and thousands of soldiers in Vietnam that said, I'm going to go home and make a movie about this. He actually did. And he made, he's a veteran of this war And he made a movie that portrays the experience of the people of that country and did and succeeded. I think it's a triumph. And to the degree that I feel him in the movie, I don't feel his directorial hand as much as I as I feel somebody trying to trying to make up for in some small way for what happened there by just telling the story. So I, there's no there's no one in the film that I felt oh there's my guy right like that guy was funny yeah <laughs> I did it was that like, crowd Dism-? of ducks <laughs> the ducks are the only rickles in this film oh, the huh? ducks were the rickles yeah I well, I gotta listen to the director's commentary me too what are we watching
3: for the next film
1: okay I've got our uh, I've got our D one hundred die here. Is the D does the D and D one hundred stand for die? Is that is that a redundancy? I think so. Dice one hundred dice.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well here it is. And it lands on lucky number five.
2: Uh number five. We jump uh, forward in the future to the second Iraq War. This is a 2010 film directed by Paul Greengrass. It's Green Zone, starring Matt Damon. Hmm.
1: If your name is Greengrass, and you direct a movie called Green Zone, shouldn't you have found a different title? (laughs) Why did he name a film after his
3: dick? Yeah, right. Come on into the Green Zone. (laughs) Uh, I have not seen this movie. Have you guys? No.
2: I have, but I don't really remember it. I mean, I remember it seeming like it was kind of trying to make a serious movie that capitalized off of the Jason Bourne associations that Matt Damon has.
3: Oh, is this a punch up style war film?
2: I think it's kind of, yeah, I think he's kind of like on foot in Baghdad, like hmm. running around. Green zoning it up. Green zoning it up, yeah.
1: Well, it's been a while since we had a pork chop movie. Matt Damon brings some chop
2: yeah uh, he's like he's probably my number one pork chop actor
3: let's find out if the green grass is greener on the other side I'm looking at the
1: bell but you're not I getting think you bell undid bell. a bell there
2: <laughs> <laughs> alright well that'll be next week on friendly fire we'll leave it with robs 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 from here so for John Roderick Adam Pranick I've been Ben Harrison to the victor go the spoiler alerts
0: friendly fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by adam pranica ben harrison and john roderick it's produced and edited by me rob schulte our logo art is by nick ditmore and our theme music is war by edwin Starr, courtesy of stone agate music if you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or just head on over to MaximumFun.org donate. Make a donation and check the Friendly Fire box. We have a subreddit and a Facebook discussion group, but if you'd like to talk about the show on Twitter, please use the hashtag Friendly Fire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at JohnRoderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week.